Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, everybody. I'm Michael Caris. Precision medicine is most often associated with the field of genetics, but today we're going to explore how the use of advanced imaging technology is also enabling providers to customize treatments. With us to explain is Dr. Rajarshi Banerjee, also known as Dr. Banjo, CEO of Perspectum, a global precision health company focused on improving the diagnosis, treatment, and management of metabolic diseases and cancer. Prior to co-founding Perspectum in 2012, Dr. Banjo was a research fellow at the University of Oxford and developed MRI techniques for rapid liver assessment while there. Dr. Banjo also has many years of experience in running clinical trials, and we're really happy to have you join us on the program today. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much, Michael, for having me. We always like to start with learning more about our guests, what first got them interested in medicine, and in your case, as I understand it, you were drawn to heart and uh, liver disease early on. Tell us how all that came about. Sure. So I grew up in the UK, and I'm the only child of a father who was an engineer and a mother who was a computer scientist. So clearly, I grew up unable to do anything apart from games on a computer and unable to change a light bulb. <laughs> but I was okay at biology, and I was okay at sort of, I guess you would call them the caring aspects of professional behavior. And so I went to do medicine in Oxford, and now I've ended up spending half my life here. But yeah, think of me as a failed engineer and a failed computer scientist. So, and imaging, how did, how did you drift over to that space? So if you um, look at the history of medicine, going back 200 years, sight is one of the key senses to use in making a diagnosis. You know, whether it's trying to determine whether or not you have liver disease by looking to see evidence of jaundice or yellowing in the whites of your eyes, pallor in your mouth or around your lips as a sign of anemia, scars to suggest old surgery, looking for lumps and bumps. So our eyes are very important to us in medicine. And increasingly, since the 1970s, experimentally in the 1990s, in major mainstream practice, we've been used to CT and MRI scans to see inside us. And I became very interested in that because when learning the practice of cardiology, scanning is very, very important because it determines who does or doesn't have heart disease and what kind of heart disease they have. And that's where I really fell in love with scanning. Because it enabled you to do a better job of diagnosis or you just love the technology piece of it or some combination? Well, remember, Michael, I'm a failed engineer, so it's never going to be about the technology for me. <laughs> so um, uh, for me, it was always being able to make the diagnosis and being able to explain to a person what was going on. And so there's a technique we use in cardiology called ultrasound or echocardiography, where you use an ultrasound probe to see the heart beating in real time, and you can explain to a patient what's going on. And for conditions like heart failure, where the heart doesn't pump as well as it should, you can show what's happening to a patient and explain to them why they have to take certain types of medicines, ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, and others, and how that can over time improve the quality of cardiac function or pumping function. And that sort of dynamic feedback really can only come from images. You can't do it with biochemical outputs or you know, lists of numbers. Pictures paint a thousand words and make the art of diagnosis much more palatable. Well, as a company that works with images, we 
completely agree with that. So how did all of this lead you on the path to perspective? And you know, how did that come together? What was your original thought? So the one thing, for all the lovely things I've said about echocardiography, one of the problems with echocardiography is it's very manual. So you have to physically put an ultrasound probe on someone's chest and move them around to see different aspects of the heart. And there is a better technique than ultrasound uh, using magnetic resonance images. So these are the big machines that have no radiation, but they're quite loud. So patients have ear defenders on when they go into them. And MRI is really the gold standard for cardiac imaging. And it was designed originally so that you could scan babies' hearts and children's hearts in great detail without any radiation. And in the early 2000s, when I was in training, the only way to really learn cardiac MRI was to do it as part of a PhD program. So I came back to Oxford from London, where I was practicing, to do a PhD program in cardiac MR. And while here, again, I fell in love with some of the new techniques that were emerging as to how you could map the heart to look for disease and applied them to other organs. And that gave birth to Perspectum, which was a spin-out company from the University of Oxford in 2012. And Perspectum was focused on heart and liver from the beginning, or, or what was the focus? Well, the idea was, again, going back 200 years in medicine, we have often in the medical professions used biopsy as the definitive way of working out what's wrong with any part of Michael. So 20, 30 years ago, if I thought there was inflammation in Michael's heart, I would do a myocardial biopsy. I would literally uh, take a little bit of your heart out, typically from the central chamber, put it on a microscope and look at it to see if there's evidence of, uh, of inflammation or fibrosis or anything else. Now that's pretty invasive, pretty painful, and not risk-free as you can imagine. And so cardiologists being fairly innovative developed scanning me mechanisms that allowed them to diagnose myocardial fibrosis or myocarditis without biopsying the heart. These methods, usually using MRI, have gained a lot of public attention recently as myocarditis has come into the public eye in conjunction with some of the mRNA vaccines and certainly also with long COVID. Hmm. The critical thing for Perspectum was, well, if you can remove the need for a biopsy of the heart, can you remove the need of the biopsy from other organs like the liver or the kidney or the prostate? So Perspectum tried to do computer-assisted imaging with AI to replace biopsies and make it therefore a lot safer and more scalable to diagnose inflammation or fibrosis or other diseases of many organs in patients. And you managed to do that? We've definitely managed to do that in the liver. So we're now in guidelines for liver disease. Um, if you have liver inflammation of any cause, you can have a liver multi-scan to determine how good or bad it is. If you have autoimmune hepatitis, which is a waxing and waning um, condition of the liver triggered by the immune system, you can use imaging to guide how much steroids or immunosuppression you have. And you can use imaging to determine if you have a liver transplant, whether the transplant is being rejected. All of these indications that I've described historically would need a biopsy to diagnose them, which creates a barrier and a delay for a patient getting the right diagnosis and therefore the right treatment. So diagnosis is only really part of the journey, right? Working out what's wrong with Michael is the first step to then hopefully making him better or in some cases counseling him as to how he can make himself better. Well, and you can see, of course, with chronic diseases, 
how this would also be helpful because as you're monitoring, you can also do that without an invasive procedure. Absolutely. And one of the nice things about scanning, again, going back to my heart failure examples to start with, is when you can show a patient what's wrong, and if they can see it and understand it, which is easier with pictures or with images, you then kind of make yourself redundant if you do your job properly. Most patients want to understand what's wrong with them. And given the, the images that they can see to, to empower them, to give them the knowledge to work out what's wrong, they can then take action to deal with it themselves. Whether that's taking the right tablets on a regular basis, because it's less of a chore and more of a benefit, whether it's abstaining from alcohol, if they've got alcohol-related liver inflammation or altering their diet, or in the case of patients with gallstones and pancreatitis, deciding whether or not they want to have a gallstone removed. There's lots of indications where actually the decision-making rests with the patient. They just need to understand the parameters of that decision. Yeah, you can see it from a patient education perspective how that'd be pretty powerful. So give me some other examples of uh, on the precision medicine piece of this. As I said at the beginning, it's you know something people automatically associate with genetics. So for providers using your products, how does it help them tailor things? Correct. Well, historically, when people have looked at precision medicine, they've generally looked at uh, genetic markers of rare diseases or histopathological markers of, for example, breast cancer to say, well, for this kind of breast cancer, we're going to do this kind of treatment based on its genetic profile and pathological profile. You can also look at a person or a person's organs with cross-sectional imaging and get very accurate characterization of what's wrong. The best examples outside of the liver and the heart are probably in the prostate and the breast. I can work out with incredible clarity what kind of prostate cancer someone has and what they're likely to respond to just from a scan. And precision medicine is really all about for a given condition with an array of possible treatments, you know, an array of possible hammers with which to hit one nail, which hammer works best? If there's only one hammer, you don't really need a precision medicine decision tool because you've got one hammer, you've got one nail, just do it. But when you have a variety of treatments, for example, in prostate cancer or many solid organ tumors, for example, in liver disease, where there are many, many potential therapies for liver inflammation, it is better for the patient to get a tailored treatment. And it's possible to tailor a treatment on genetics, of course, on pathology, but also on imaging. And actually, if you project forward to when our kids are adults, and my kids are five and seven, so we're talking about 15, maybe 20 years down the line, I suspect that they will have integ integrated diagnostics that tailor their treatments in all three domains, imaging, pathology, and genetics. So right now, there really are no systems that integrate that seamlessly or without much trouble for, for providers? There are no technology systems that do that. Good doctors do that all the time. Yeah. So when, when patients see physicians, the really great doctors, you know, the top of the game ones, they don't wow you by how complicated uh, they describe something. Or certainly for me, they wow me by how simple they make things sound. Mm -hmm. So I may go into a clinic or into a, a medical meeting with a complex case of condition X in a patient who also has other comorbid conditions A and B and has had these odd symptoms of P and Q. 
And someone really good, Michael, will be able to say to me, hmm, this is this fits with that and that fits with this and this reduces all these spinning plates to two or three questions that need asking and if the answers are this and this then the treatment is this or that and that degree of simplicity almost creating the story for each individual patient based on them mm. rather than a textbook that is the art of really great medicine. Yeah, the communication piece is so important. So we talked about biopsies. Are there other traditional testing methods that your technology can replace? So uh, the the other thing apart from biopsies that I think is ripe for a, a little bit of disruption, and a little bit of disruption is always good, is how we assess patients with multi-organ disease. So historically, going back maybe not just 30 or 40 years, it's always been a story of specialization. So you used to have hospitals. I remember here in Oxford, we used to have five or six consultants running the whole hospital department of medicine. And now we have maybe 200 and there's much more specialization. So whereas previously you had a cardiologist who did all cardiac medicine and quite a lot of other types of medicine too. Now you have cardiologists who just do interventional cardiology or just do imaging or just do electrophysiology or just do rhythm disorders or just do genetic disorders. Problems occur when you have all these specialists, but you don't have someone as a human who can integrate across disciplines. So when a person comes in with, for example, breathlessness, a good internist will assess their lungs, their heart, that other internal organs that may lead to breathlessness, so for example, muscle diseases, pancreatitis, inflammation, and work out on balance what's wrong. Specialists often find this difficult to do because they're great in their domain, but outside of their domain, it's a little bit risky for them to opine. And so as we bring together technologies that integrate across technology, so we've talked about imaging plus pathology plus genetics, for the human, Actually, what we need to do is integrate across organs. So lungs plus heart plus kidneys, for example. And there are some physicians who are very good at this naturally. And there are some specialties that are very good at this naturally as well. Anesthetists or anesthesiologists, you call them in the US. Internists and intensive care doctors. They're used to looking after a whole patient rather than just one organ or just consulting on one organ. And so that's an area where perspectum is quite deeply entrenched as we try and address what we call in England, the multi-morbid patient, someone who's got more than one thing wrong with them. And therefore it's a balanced scorecard approach as to what you treat and how you treat it. Well, and you'd, you'd mentioned long COVID before, and this has emerged as an application, as I take it, for what you're talking about, because it does affect multiple systems. Exactly. So, and, and this is one of the problems we found with long COVID at the beginning is that you know, as the epidemiologists began to accept that this was a big problem. So, you know, approximately 6% of US patients who have symptomatic COVID still have symptoms at three months. And 15% of them, it's so almost 1%, have symptoms at one year. That's 1% of all Americans who've had COVID. That's a lot of people with long term. A lot of people, yeah. And these people have symptoms really in three domains. They have breathlessness, fatigue and brain fog or cerebral impairment. And what, you know, if you have breathlessness, you can see three or four different types of doctors. 
brain frog, do you see a neurologist? Do you see a psychiatrist? Do you see a counselor? Do you see a rehab doctor? And fatigue. I mean, uh, there's many Sundays, I'm sure, Michael, you wake up fatigued. <laughs> <laughs> Sundays? <laughs> I could throw five or six other days so in there. So it, it becomes a real challenge as you try and tease out which patients need which specialties, if at all. Add to that, the American Disabilities Association has defined long COVID as a disability if you can have demonstrable organ impairment. And so we've worked really hard with the different agencies, including health and human sciences, to produce a test that's scalable across the United States that assesses multiple organs at the same time. And we've received a CPT code and are in discussions about how we roll this out over the next few months, mainly to make it accessible to the wide variety of patients that have long COVID. But yes, it's a, it's a big challenge. It's a multi-organ challenge and it's a multi-specialty challenge. And so standardizing some aspects of it by how we look at the body, I hope will be useful. So this is an MRI scan that you folks are able to interpret it away for the provider where they can see what's going on in, in various yeah. organs. So, so it's a 40 minute MRI scan that looks at your lungs, your heart, your liver, your pancreas, your kidneys, and your spleen. And based on that, in the best case scenario, we can say, Michael, you have no significant organ abnormalities. You may have long COVID, but hopefully you'll recover and there's nothing that we can do right now other than rest and rehabilitation. That not being the case, if we pick up damage in one or more organs, we can at least direct you to the right, we would say here in the UK, ologist, right? So <laughs> if we have problems with your lungs, we'll direct you to a pulmonologist. If you have problems with your heart, we'll direct you to a cardiologist. If you have problems with both, we'll say go to one, but bear in mind that the other one is also impacted as well. This makes it a lot more efficient for the payer and also for the patient, because remember, these patients are starting out with either brain fog or breathlessness or fatigue. So multiple visits to multiple specialties is not really top of their agenda. So what are you trying to tackle next? I mean, not that that isn't enough to keep you busy for a long time, but where do you see this technology going? Michael, as you came out with that question, I thought you, my mother had fed it to you. <laughs> um, oh, I'm um, sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, don't. I love my mother. She's always pushing me. The thing I'm proudest at, about in Perspective is we have a lot of scientists who do great basic science that's applicable to the assessment of human health. And we also have great clinical scientists who address tough questions. Long COVID is a case in point. When we started doing long COVID research two and a half years ago, it wasn't sure that it was a real disease. No one really wanted to know about it. I mean, acute COVID was bad enough. Who wanted to deal with the long-term consequences? And in order to address it, we would have to work with a variety of different stakeholders. This all seemed very challenging in a world where you couldn't meet people or travel freely. But I'm very proud of the guys for taking that on and doing it. So when you ask what we want to do next, it's the next big challenges in digital health, which is really all aspects of health, but addressed in a quantitative digital function. Personally, I think the biggest areas that need attention, certainly in the US, are metabolic disease and the cancers that arise from metabolic risk factors, which are colon cancer, breast cancer, and liver cancer. The the rise in the rate of obesity and metabolic diseases means that unless we do something about them, 
there is going to be a fourfold rise in breast, colon, and liver cancer in the next two decades because of the rising risk factor profile of right. children's generation. Hmm. So we either deal with it with a public health policy and good diagnosis of the chronic disease and m mitigate the risk factors, or we deal with the cancers, or more, more likely we'll have to do both because right. we don't foresee our public health completely reversing the trend in obesity-related disease. Hmm. And in all of these indications, imaging along with blood tests, but probably not necessarily genetics, are going to be the key drivers of early diagnosis, treatment, and monitoring. What about the access question there? I mean, because this obviously seems like terrific mm. technology to have. What kind of penetration are you getting? What are you hoping for? I mean, we hear a lot of guests talk about how long it can take for adoption on the part of providers or hospital systems. Talk a little bit about that side of it. So we're very fortunate in a way, and it's serendipity. It's always easier to get an MRI scan than it is to get a biopsy. If I told you I was going to stick you in the side with a nine centimeter needle, and I could do that locally, or you could drive 50 miles to an MRI scan and have a scan which was as good, I'm fairly certain that you would cover the cost of that petrol for that journey. You're right. <laughs> so, so access is partly determined by risk and the risk of a biopsy is much higher than the risk of a scan. Secondly, the United States is, is very well resourced with regard to scanning equipment. There are approximately 13,000 MRIs in the United States, which is also coincidentally the same number as there are of McDonald's franchises. <laughs> so, That's um, a great statistic. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So for, for our kind of metabolic imaging, it's sort of one-to-one. -one. <laughs> and we've worked with the manufacturers, especially General Electric and Siemens, and we know that they're open to having more access to MR scanners, whether it's mobile systems to service to service rural areas, whether it's um, renewing the equipment in existing hospital-based systems in the cities and the metropolitan areas, they're very open to it. That is their business model. But what we can do is add AI to the scans to make them shorter, more efficient, and more quantitative so that you can see the tissue characteristics as well as the anatomy. But you're right, access is, a, is still an issue across many types of healthcare, even just seeing your first doctor who may say that you might have liver disease. And that's why we need to work with agencies like Health and Human Sciences and CMS, which part of them, to make sure that our tests are appropriately coded and covered by Medicare so that they are accessible to people. And I have to say that our US team has worked incredibly well with those agencies to raise the profile of access for chronic disease. That's great news. So as we wrap up here, we always like to have our guests provide a little advice to our audience, which is mostly students and early career professionals, about dealing with this moment in time where we're still dealing with the pandemic, but also just generally looking forward to their career. What do you tell young docs? Young people in medicine, firstly, you're in a very, very privileged career. You get to meet some wonderful people, both professional colleagues, but probably most of all patients, you'll, you'll hear the most amazing stories from people who you get the privilege to talk to as part of your job. But the biggest thing I can say is, if you, you must never forget that it's a caring profession. And actually being a great doctor is not about, or a great healthcare professional, is not about how much you know, or how much you can do, or 
what you, what procedure you feel that you can do better than anybody else. The best physicians I've met, and I've been lucky enough to speak to many, are the ones that care the most. That in turn ensures they have the highest standards. That in turn ensures that they have the best outcomes, which in turn defines that they are the best. But it all starts with caring. That's a great point. I mean, we spend a lot of time on this uh, program talking to entrepreneurs like yourself and talking about digital health uh, and people can get kind of distracted, maybe is not quite the right word, by all the technology and the AI and focused on all these tools and bells and whistles at the risk of losing sight of really what it's about, which is what you were just talking about. So that's a great note to end on. I want to thank you so much for spending time with us today, Dr. Banjo. No trouble at all. Thank you, Michael, and uh, good luck with the show. Thank you. I'm Michael Carice. Thanks for checking out today's program. And remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen the healthcare system. We're all in this together. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Mm-hmm.